You may remain standing, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word this morning, which comes from Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, page number 941 in your pew Bibles. Um, I'm, I'm sure you would come to church on Christmas Eve and expect a... Um, incarnation sort of sermon, but I'm actually going to stay in Romans. I've been preaching through Romans, started this fall, and um, so make some reference here and there in the sermon to to this particular special season, but um, it's not a, a particularly unique or special um, incarnation-only type sermon. It, uh, we're going to con- continue here in Romans chapter 3, looking this morning at verses 27 to 31. Now, just to give you a little bit of background, in the book of Romans, um, Paul says in the first chapter, chapter 1, verse 16, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. So that's the theme of this letter to the Christians in Rome that Paul wrote. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. You, know, you may say, well, what is, what is, what is the gospel? And the gospel means good news. And so the good news of Christ and all that entails, Jesus, in a sense, is the power of God for salvation. And then he spends, uh, that was in chapter 1, verse 16, where he says that. And then he spends the rest of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, and into chapter 3 through verse 20, uh, talking about man's unrighteousness and our need for Jesus. And then beginning in chapter 3, verse 21, he talks about God's righteousness in providing Christ Jesus. And he'll talk about Um, This, uh, Paul will, from chapter 3, verse 21, really through chapter 5. So, verses 21 to 26 that we looked at a couple weeks ago is God's righteousness really revealed. Today, it's His righteousness defended because there were um, some, some critics of this gospel that Paul was preaching. They were shocked, in a sense, at the idea that a man could be made right with God by some way other than keeping the law, doing these certain rituals and, and being good and being obedient and so forth, which is what Paul's teaching is that our justification is by grace through faith in, in Christ, the work of Christ, not in anything that any man can do. Which leads then to what he says, beginning here, verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is God's Word. Thanks be to God. Lord, the 119th Psalm, verse 18 reads, Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. And Lord, that is indeed my prayer for every single one of us today. Open our eyes that we might see wondrous things from your law. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It 
every parent will feel at some point uh, the need to brag on their children. Now, I'm not sure when it first started, but it was, it's been a number of years ago now that um, the children who made the honor roll at their elementary school were given a bumper sticker. And, of course, you, as a parent, had to, had to put it on the back of your car that your child was an honor roll student at you know, such and such elementary school. Such and such elementary school. Maybe you, maybe you had one yourself, um, and, uh, and no doubt you have seen them. And of course, when that happens, it puts parents in a sense between a rock and a hard place, because your kid wants you to put it on there, but you don't want to brag. So, what do you do there? Of course, not every child is an honor roll student. Um, you know, maybe he's a football star, or she's a cheerleader, or maybe he's an artist, or, or they're in drama club, or a band, or something other than being an honor roll student. No matter how you think about it, though, every parent is going to be, at times, tempted to brag on, boast about their child and their achievements. One article that I read recently by um, Jordan Griesbach put it this way, there is an unrelenting pressure felt by every parent, the pressure to find your child's thing. That thing could be baseball, ballet, horseback riding, hockey, table tennis, good grades, getting into a good college, trumpet, trombone, tuba, debate team, chess club. It doesn't matter. There are many ways to find your child's thing. What matters is your child having some Identity marker, which separates them and you from the pack, which they and you can display to the world, and which grants them and you a reason for living. Or in other words, what matters is that you are valuable. They are valuable. What matters is that you're good for society. What matters is that the world needs more people like you. What do you tend to brag about? What's your thing, as it's the way it's put in the article? What's the thing about yourself that you find yourself wanting to promote and make sure that you know others or that others know about you? What, what's the thing that you want to tell others? What this passage that I just read uh, teaches us, really, is that whatever you boast about, that's where your faith is. That, that's really where you find your life. Whatever it is that you like to boast about. If your faith is in yourself and some of your achievements, then you'll talk about yourself and you'll boast about yourself and your achievements. If your faith is in the Lord then you'll be talking about God and His work, His blessings in your life. So let me try to work through this with several points. The, the main point, of course, that, that's we, that we read here, that we see here again, is that justification, or being able to stand before God right, being justified before Him, is by grace alone. And what we see here is that, first of all, justification by grace alone removes boasting. It gets rid of boasting. 
bragging in any way. Verse 27 says it. Then what becomes of our boasting? He's just been saying that, that we're made right with God by grace alone, not by any of our works. So then he asks the question, well, then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. There's, there's to be none of it. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. That's how it's, that's how it's excluded. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now this is clarifying, just continuing to sort of drive home, beat the drum that Paul's been talking about for a long time now here in Romans uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3. But particularly chapter 3 here. Um, a man is made right with God by grace through faith in the work of Jesus. And that leads to not boasting, but to praising to praising God, giving thanks to God, being appreciative of the Lord. The way John Stott put it is this way, praising, not boasting, is the characteristic activities of justified believers. Praising, not boasting, is the characteristic activity of justified believers. You know, we always want to get credit, don't we? And we're no different from the Jews and Gentiles of the Bible time. Even in this um, book of Romans, the Jews boasted. We read about in chapter 2, verse 17, Jews rely on the law and boast in God. But you go back into chapter 1, and we see the Gentiles also boasted. We, we read there, talking about the, the Gentiles there, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful. Boasting is the language of our fallenness, our fallen self-centeredness. That's what boasting is. And it's always a, tempt a temptation because we're always wanting to make ourselves look good. We're always wanting to get credit for looking good. Which means if we did something good and no one saw it, we'll be sure to tell people about it. Or we will only do something good if others see it. That's, again, that's a form of, of boasting. And, and frankly, just, just regular conversation is so many times for us. It's just sort of a boasting. Ever noticed how many in conversation, how many times our sentences begin with the letter I? Well, somebody says, well, I, I was doing this. And then we, we don't really dig down and kind of engage in what they were talking about. We, we kind of turn it back to ourselves. Oh, yeah, I had a similar experience when blah, 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 blah. It's just back and forth. And each time it's, it, it's, it's I this, I that. Bette Midler was an actor years ago. I don't know if she's still doing any films. But in one film she, star, she started in, uh, uh, years ago, her character said at one time, but enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think about me? <laughs> That's how we think. So self-centered. Always wanting to promote self. Always wanting to put self forward. And again, whatever you boast in, that's really where your faith is. Because what you boast in gives you confidence to go out into the world. What you boast in fundamentally defines you. It's where you draw your sense of identity. It's where you draw your sense of value. And what Paul's been teaching here, justification by faith alone, it gives you no room to boast. None at all. It excludes all boasting. 
Because faith understands that there's nothing we do that justifies us. And the sinful nature, which we all share, we all share a sinful nature, it, it knows that we're down and out. It knows that we're in debt. It knows that we lack approval, that we've underperformed. And so boasting is the, is the attempt really to fill the, the gap, fill the void, make, make ourselves presentable. But the reality is there's no, there's no relationship more important than our relationship with God. And if the Lord sees us because of the work of Christ, no longer having to stand on our own performance, when that's the case and we stand before God justified with His smile upon us, then we don't have to keep boasting. We don't have to keep promoting ourselves. We don't have to be uh, always kind of putting our best foot forward in a sense. We're free from having to, to keep up the charade. Faith alone, not works. It leads to us being able to quit talking about ourselves. And when I catch myself, when you catch yourself boasting, we need to understand that it, what it shows really is that we're not really understanding or living in and appreciating this gospel of justification by grace alone, faith alone, not by works. There's a, a, a beautiful hymn. I mentioned it, I think, just a couple of weeks ago in a sermon. Beneath the cross of Jesus, where the last phrase and the last verse of that verse is... My sinful self, my only shame, my glory, all the cross. That's the only thing that I can be excited about is that the cross of Christ covers my sin. That, that's it. Justification by grace alone. It removes boasting, talking about self, presenting uh, the, our, our, our best foot forward. And one other just little side note here. Justification by grace alone is offensive. It's offensive. It, it, it punches self-righteousness in the nose. It says, justification by, by grace alone is God saying, I don't care about the things you boast in. I'm not impressed. It's God saying, what you think is most important about yourself is totally irrelevant to me. It's unimportant to me. And so that's offensive because that's what we build our lives on. It's the thing that we're, that we're looking to to justify ourselves. And when God says, no, that won't, sorry, it's not enough, then it can be quite offensive, this idea of justification by grace alone. So it removes boasting. Secondly, justification by grace alone removes elitism. It removes elitism. You know, the Jews were in a special covenant relationship with the Lord. We read about that here, going back to chapter 3, verse 2. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And it talks more about that. In chapter 9, Lord willing, we'll get there someday. It, Paul will go into great detail of the blessings of being Jewish. But as John Stott says it, the Jews' privileges were not intended for the exclusion of the Gentiles, but for their ultimate inclusion. Their privileges were not intended to exclude the Gentiles, but ultimately to include the Gentiles. 
which is what we see here in verse 29. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. In other words, He'll justify the Jew and the Gentile. The Jews. Blessed by the Lord. But blessed to be a blessing. When you, when you go back to Genesis chapter 12, where you have the beginning of the, of the Hebrews, in a sense, through Abraham, we read these words. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Jews were blessed to be a blessing to others. Now we refer to the people of God today as the church. Christians, believers, people who trust in the work of Christ alone to make them right with God. And the church is blessed to be a blessing. We are called to be salt and light. We're called to, be, to we've been given a ministry of reconciliation. We're called to be peacemakers. On and on we, we, we go thinking about the blessings of being the church. And that's just it. We are blessed to be a blessing. And a church that practices any sort of elitism or discrimination is not practicing the gospel. The way that James says it in chapter 2 uh, of the book of James, if anyone comes into your uh, assembly dressed with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes and you give him the special place to sit and, and all that, you don't understand the gospel. See, and that's not the way it works at all. And in particular, um, the church of Jesus Christ should be people who are, who are caring about those who are in lower stations in life, maybe lower incomes or, or just lower um, positions in their jobs, people who oftentimes are exploited and taken advantage of. I remember hearing about a, a Christian CEO who, when he would interview people to come work for him in his country, uh, in his company, he would ask them, one of the questions he asked them was, what's the name of your janitor? What's the name of the person who cleans your office building? Now, I, I get it that today a lot of, you, you kind of hire that out and they do it at 2 o'clock in the morning when you're not there. So maybe this is an old illustration that doesn't, doesn't work today. But the principle is, here you are, the CEO of this big company. Do you, do you, care, do you care about people who maybe have a, a lower status, job and income and things like that? Justification by grace alone, it removes elitism. Because it, it, it's been said, you've heard it, I'm sure said this way before, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. A number of years ago, I was able to take a, be a part of a mission trip in the Czech Republic. And one of the things, it was a great trip in many, many ways, but one of the things that stood out to me was the arrogance of us Americans. Uh, we went over there, and uh, we were working with a, a, a group that um, does college ministries. It was their, their Western name for their ministries called In Life in, within Czech Republic and um, they, they do great work there. And uh, at one time, we were all around this kind of long conference room table, the Americans and then the, the Czech staff working with this college ministry. And we were having discussion about 
uh, just ways to be more effective in trying to show the love of God to college students and so forth. And, um, and at one point I realized the checks were quiet. But we Americans, we had all the answers. And we just dominated the conversation. We monopolized the conversation. And it's just like, why do we do that? Because we forget that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We think that, it, that we've, just, we've got so much to offer God. He's so lucky to have us on His team. And it's just ridiculous. Our boasting, our elitism, discrimination, it's, we, we've got to watch out for and pray against elitism because it's a sin to which we all might fall. One writer has put it this way. When we forget this, justification by grace alone, faith alone, and boast in our works, our culture, our people, our social class, he says it can lead to four things. One, it leads to division and discrimination. In a sense, I've been talking about that. We, we become prideful about our, our people, our tribe, uh, and our connection to our tribe. And then it makes us hypercritical where we focus on the weaknesses of others. Second, it makes us condescending where we talk down to people, talk down at people. Third, it leads to blindness in the sense of we don't see our own flaws the flaws and sins of our own people, our own group. We get touchy, you know, when someone criticizes us or our people. And then finally, it leads to anxiety. So that whenever our tribe, our people are, are, are criticized or threatened, then we become nervous, we become controlling. Justification by grace alone, it, it gets to the root of those sorts of issues. It gets to the root of elitism and, and boasting and removes them. And then third and finally, justification by grace alone removes lawlessness. It removes lawlessness. Or you could say carelessness about the law of God. It, it, it removes um, or it leads to a love for the law of God, the word of God. Is, which is what we see here in verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? In other words, if being made right with God doesn't have anything to do with keeping the law, but it has to do with, with faith, well then, so do we just get rid of the law? He says, Paul does, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Now in Romans chapter 6, Paul will get into great detail about how it upholding the law and how it works itself out in our lives. But when he says here, no way, that we don't overthrow the law. He's teaching us that a believer understands and loves the law of God, the, the Scriptures, more than someone who is seeking to be saved by keeping the law. When, when our approach to God is, is merit-based, uh, am I keeping the law? Am I doing enough? There's all this pressure. And you eventually come to hate the law. Or hate yourself. 
or become very prideful. You know, if you, if you do well keeping the law, then you become very prideful and hypercritical and, and look down on everybody else. But you, most of the time, when we're honest, we fail to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, love our neighbors ourselves, to practice patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control and all these things. And so when we feel crushed by the law, then we, when, then we hate it. Because it, we just can't do it. We can't keep it up. We, we can't keep the law. But a believer comes into a right relationship with God, understanding that their standing before God is based on nothing that they do, but only the work of Christ. And so then they, they love to try to keep the law. But it's not their, their righteousness, their standing before, before God is not based on their ability to keep it. And so they don't want to live recklessly and just punt the law because you have new want-tos. You have a, the Holy Spirit living inside of you. You're a new creation. And so you, you hate sin that you still see in your life and you daily repent of that sin. And then you seek to obey the law of God. And the last thing I want to say about this keeping of the law is that verse 31 here is teaching that the law still matters in many ways. And the main way it matters is this. And just hang on to, with me for, for just a second. It still has to be kept perfectly. But here's the issue. Only Jesus has kept it perfectly. Which is why you have to find yourself in Him. You have to ride in on His coattails. Because you and I will never keep it perfectly. But it does have to be kept perfectly. God is a perfectly righteous, holy judge. He doesn't just say, I know what, let's, I'll tell you what, let's just pretend that didn't happen. Come on, you're good. Everything's good in our relationship. No, the law must be kept perfectly. A Christian is one that says, Jesus, I believe that Jesus did and I'm with him. That's, that's my hope. He is, he is my source. He is the basis upon which I stand before God. You know, you may, most likely, many of you are here today and you would say, you know, I'm not a very good Christian. Well, Jesus was. He was a really good Christian. He was a perfect Christian in your place. He kept the law perfectly. And so you ride to God on His coattails and you let the law crush you so that you'll look to something other than yourself to, and your ability to keep that law to stand before God. It's like Charlie Brown. You know, you've perhaps gotten yourself reacquainted with Charlie Brown's Christmas cartoon this, this Advent season. And there's, there's one picture where he's holding that, you know, flimsy, measly, pitiful little tree. Um, he's, he's holding it. And he's staring into the sky where there's a, a bright star. And he's looking at the start. That's, that's us. What we bring to the table is pitiful, is weak, is measly. And so our eyes are not on that which we bring. It's on the star, the Lord Jesus. You remember that article that I mentioned when I began about how everybody has to have a thing. Something that, in which we can boast. Um, the article... Ends it, ends it this way. He says, recently my family moved to Dallas and I was tallying up all the different dorms, apartments, and houses 
I'd lived in since I left for college? The answer, 13. I asked my dad how many homes he's lived in his whole life. And he said, four. He's lived his whole life in Memphis, Tennessee. When I asked him about his life, it's clear he never really had a thing. He didn't play any sports in high school and he wasn't in the band. He, wasn't really, he was really smart though. He went to a Catholic high school and was admitted into Notre, Notre Dame. Every Catholic boy's dream and his dream too until he didn't go. <laughs> he was dating my mom at the time so he stayed in town and went to Memphis State which is not the same as Notre Dame. He graduated college in three years and went on to be an accountant, just like his dad and just like his four other brothers. My dad is a man without a thing, and I'm here to tell you that he's doing just fine. He just turned 70 years old. He's still married. He has four adult children who are all still in the church and all know that they are loved without condition, which now that I think of it is beginning to sound like another man who had no beauty or majesty to attract him to us. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Jesus was a talented and gifted child, to be sure. Known for hanging around the temple and teaching the older scribes about the Bible. But you know, he never had a thing in a sense. He was no politician. He was no philosopher or great merchant or celebrity, he resisted having a thing so that he could become nothing so that no one would ever need a thing. And that's who we celebrate this Christmas season, the Lord Jesus who gave himself for you and for me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we will sing in just a few moments, O come all ye faithful, we think about this verse, or this hymn, O come all ye faithful, and we admit and confess that we are not perfectly faithful in any way, but we are today a people full of faith. We're faithful in that sense, full of faith, meaning our hope is in Jesus. Our trust is in Christ. We, we stand in Him as we seek to stand before You. That is our only hope. And I pray that each of us would sense that in a new and fresh way today. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing. It's hymn number 208.